Hey there, welcome to the House Podcast. We hope that today's message challenges you in the best ways. Remember to reach out to us anytime, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. as many people in here today as we, as we did. We're in a series called uh, The Great Invitation. And today I want to talk about the invitation that Jesus gives to us to be children, to be like children. And one of the things I like about children is their innate curiosity. And uh, I, I was reading about this little girl by the name of Casey, and she was in Sunday school. And she, she said to the Sunday school teacher, if the people that live in Israel are called Israelites and the uh, people that live in Canaan are called Canaanites, she said, are the people who live in Paris called parasites? Uh, <laughs> Matthew chapter 18, starting verse 1, the Bible says, and at that time the disciples came to Jesus. So then they said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a child and stood her in the middle of them. I'm telling you the truth, he said, unless you inside and out become like children, you will never, ever get into the kingdom of heaven. So if any of you make yourself humble like this little child, you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And if anyone welcomes one such child in my name, they they welcome me. Um, Oliver and Chad just usually kind of put a schedule together, a speaking schedule. And then they'll give me a passage or a subject. And I only preach once a month. um, and, uh, And so I have three or four weeks to prepare. And so I'll just soak in a passage like this and read as many commentaries as I can, often listen to as many talks as I can, and uh, until I've kind of let, till something surfaces and really grabs me. And so I have the luxury of spending a lot of time with any one of these talks. Um, and it, it, it struck me as I read it that this question of who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven uh, if you're just reading through Matthew, it comes kind of out of nowhere. And, and, and so I decided to, 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 to spend some time figuring out what was driving this question. And I stepped back and I realized that before the disciples met Jesus, their lives were remarkably unremarkable. Uh, the, the fishermen among them basically got up, got in their boat, pushed out, threw nets out, bring them in, threw them out, bring them in, threw them out. And at the end of their shift, they bring whatever fish they got and they go to sell them, they go home, they eat fish, they go to sleep, and the next day they do it all over again. They, they, they lived these boring lives. But when they met Jesus and they began to follow Jesus, um, a shift took place. Because in the first century, during the three years of Jesus' ministry, Jesus and disciples were, 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 were what everyone was talking about. 
Everyone was talking about what Jesus said. He was controversial. He was inspirational. And not to mention the miracles, the healings, the deliverances. What else is there to talk about? if they weren't talking about Jesus and the disciples. And the masses were talking about them, and the masses were, were, were sought them out, and the masses received from them. And so they're right smack dab in the middle of the hottest commodity, hottest topic in the first century. And, I, and I, as I watched this, I, I began to think about, well, so I found another shift. Like that would be quite, that's like going into stardom for three years. But there was another shift that happened among the guys. And that was when Jesus started talking about ruling and reigning in the kingdom of heaven. When he started talking about ruling and reigning in the kingdom of heaven, you could see that the disciples began to imagine what they would be handed, what honors and offices of authority. They began to think, if he's going to rule and reign, and we're his guys, we're going to rule and reign. And they began to argue with each other about who gets the highest position in this new administration. And, and their arguments became visceral, they became heated. And, and that's what they talked about among themselves. They never bring that to the table until this time, this verse, with Jesus. But you can tell it's probably hit a boiling point, and now they got to know. In fact, James and John, they went to the place where they, they basically went to Jesus and said, pick us as your top two guys. They said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and at the other at your, your left hand in glory. Make us Make us great. Make us your guys. So in the face of this arguing, in the face of this, this posturing and positioning, Jesus answers their question about greatness by bringing a little child. A little child. And points to the little child. And he says this. You, you, for all the talk about the kingdom of heaven, you'll never get in. Until you become like this little one. Not get in. And he said, you know what? You'll never be great in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom I've been talking to you about. Until you humble yourself like this little child. N.T. Wright, he said, humility is what counts in God's kingdom. Because pride and arrogance are the things that have destroyed and distorted so many lives. And I think he's right. What makes this story um, more remarkable, especially to a first century church, is that children had very little value in a Jewish, first century Jewish culture. They were regarded as property slaves, really, more than they were considered members of the family, and their gender mattered. They were expected to observe and obey. They were looked after. They were not looked up to. And Jesus, by pointing to this child as a picture of greatness, was a radical idea. And I promise you this, the disciples had no clue what to do with the idea. 
And N.T. Wright is, is somebody that I really uh, respect. Um, and N.T. Wright talks about how when, the, when in the Gospels, when we're talking about children, uh, Dr. Luke emphasizes how young the children were, that people were bringing to Jesus to bless them. They were infants. He says these infants are the ones who most truly show us what it means to accept and to enter God's kingdom. These infants. And when, we, when, when I read that, all of a sudden it began to open up something completely different for me. Because when I think about a child, I think about a three-year-old. When I think about an infant, it changes what it means to be like this little one. Um, There's something about the helplessness and the complete trust that a child places in those who care for them and those who love them. And I think that complete trust is what demonstrates the humble trust that Jesus is trying to illustrate. And where there is humble trust, Jesus is saying there is greatness. Where there's humble trust, there's greatness. I'm, I'm a, Marcy and I have four grandchildren. And um, I've had the privilege of when they were infants, holding them, rocking with them, usually feeding them a bottle right before bed. And when they're, when they're, when they're just infants, it's an incredibly intimate experience for me. And I'd be holding them and rocking. I didn't do it often. I'm just really honest. Marcy did it a lot. Um, but I'd be holding them and these little ones just be drinking away at their bottle. And they're staring up at my face. I look better at a distance, just so you know. And they're staring up at my face. And they're playing with, she, you know, my little grandson would play with my finger. Doesn't even know he's doing it. And I think about that. It's, it's like a, 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 a baby drinking its mother's milk. Learning to see and smile by looking at the face of the one who loves this child the most. When that child is drinking and nursing, the child is not the least bit concerned about being dropped. They're completely content. Taking all of their emotional, mental and emotional cues from that face. Understanding the world through that face. Is it possible that this is what Jesus was describing when he talked about becoming like little children? When we take the, the cues for our mental and emotional and our spiritual identity from the face of the God who loves us, it makes room for us to begin to act like Children of God. The psalmist said this, your face, Lord, do I seek. Your face do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Could you imagine if the child didn't have a face to look at in those early years? And the psalmist is longing for that same connection 
Your face, O Lord, do I seek. Don't hide your face from me. It's like he's saying, if, I, if you hide your face, I won't know who I am. If you, if you hide your face, I won't know how to be. See, as a mirror has a, no, no, no illumination in and of itself. Did you know that? A mirror does not have, uh, if, if it's light outside, the, the, the mirror illuminates light. If it's dark, the, the mirror is dark. And just as the, 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 a mirror doesn't have any illumination, so the human heart has no illumination of itself. It simply reflects back what it is looking at, what it is focusing on, what it is feeding on. And over the whole of your life, your life, the story that you will, the picture that you'll become has everything to do with what your heart is feeding on. Science has discovered that we have um, a, a, a a group of neurons in our frontal lobe called mirroring neurons. They're part of another group of, of uh, uh, neurons that are called motor command neurons. Motor command neurons will fire when I, I want to pick up this piece of paper and they will fire in my brain and allow, tell my body to pick up the piece of paper. What's interesting is while I'm picking up this piece of paper, your mirroring neurons are firing. And in your brain, you're simulating the exact thing I'm doing up here with my hands and with this paper. You're actually able to simulate that in your brain. That's why when someone smiles at you, the most human thing you can do is smile back. God created us this way. When someone waves at you, you most naturally wave back. It's why when someone laughs, you want to laugh. It's why when someone is sad, you even mirror their sadness or their heaviness. And is it possible that when God created us this way, he created us first to mirror heaven and to mirror heaven to one another and then to mirror each other. Create us to mirror heaven the face of God, the love of God. And these mirroring neurons are a huge part of our spiritual vitality. It's why when we, we, we're worshiping, you know what you're looking, when you're worshiping, you're really looking at a, a, an attribute of, of God's love. It's why when you are reading your Bible, you're looking at the face of God, as it were. Um, and that mirroring is absolutely powerful in your life. Our oldest son, he's 36 now. And um, when he was in his teens, he developed a very serious eating disorder. Mike uh, was bullied as a child in elementary school and even in junior high and we changed schools to get him away from the bullies the problem is you can't get him away from the bully's voice and the words of the bullies and the word the cruel things that that he endured and when Mike was 14 he started to sprout 
And at the same time, he, he, he started to shrink. And he became terribly thin. Obviously, um, something was wrong. And, and disordered eating is a complex thing. Uh, with lots of moving parts. And, and in telling you this story, I, I don't mean to, 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 to bring it down to one thing. But my, my, my desire in telling you this story is I want to, you, to illustrate for you the power of looking into the face of God through the words of God. Okay, that's the point of the story. And Mike, Mike uh, was uh, pretty sick for three years. And uh, we took him to doctors, obviously. We took him to counselors, obviously. We took him to nutritionists, obviously. We, we did everything we knew what to do, and he was getting worse. And we watched for three years as he fought his demons, and they just about killed him. And he got to the very, very end of himself. And, and, and he just, he needed something, anything. And Marcy and I did not know what to do. We, we were out of ideas, and then... We, we, we came to the place where we just wanted the voices, the cruel words spoken to him to stop. And we just wanted him to, to know how utterly loved he is. And there's an unconditional love that he has access to. And so we, we, we came up with this idea. We asked Mike, what, what, what do you think God thinks about you? What, what do you think God thinks about your fear of rejection and your shame? What do you, what do you think he thinks about you? And I said, go, go, go into the scriptures. Look into the word. Look into truth and, 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 and find and ask the Holy Spirit to bring certain verses right to the surface where they mean something. They're not just a flat read. And Mike took the exercise seriously and began to pour over scripture and he found verses that affirmed him in love, affirmed him that nothing could separate him from the love of God, affirmed him that he would never be rejected. Uh, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And, and he found about a dozen verses that really connected him. And I said, when you find those verses, and we gave him a little notebook, just a tiny little book, and he wrote them all in there. And I said, when you get triggered, when you're, Shame gets triggered when your fear of rejection gets triggered. I said, pick the verse that applies to that and declare it out loud. Talk to it out loud. And declare the truth over your body, over your mind, over your life. And, and, and we, we could see him. Again, this went on for about a year. And we could see him walking around the yard or the house just talking to himself. The neighbors probably thought he was crazy. Mike, Mike, Mike is a, a musician. And so those, those verses became songs for him. And the themes around these verses uh, inspired more songs. And we didn't even really know what Mike was doing because we bought him a keyboard, but he just wore headphones. I was too cheap to buy him a speaker. And so he's in his room just going at it with his keyboard. And then we bought him a speaker, and that's when we could hear what was going on. 
And, 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 and he, he, he said to me, you know, when, when finally this thing started to let go, he said, as God's voice is getting louder, he said, the other voices are losing their grip. And one day he came to Morris and I, and just like that, he said, it's done. I'm free. And it doesn't really work that way in my experience. But for him, it's exactly how it worked. And he was free. And that has never been an issue in his life again. When the Bible says that there is no fear in the perfect love of God, all of a sudden that, that made sense to me for the first time, maybe in a long time, because he began, love got so big that there was no, no air in the room for fear, at least in the areas that he was, he was struggling. I'm going to invite the, the band to come up. So my, my, my first point in this talk is to look at the face of God. Figure out what that means to you and go there regularly. Stay there as long as you can. If you're looking for the face of God, you will see the face of God in many things, in everything, in each other, if that's what you're looking for. Um, I think the band's having a cigarette. Um, um, the second point I'm making is um, talks about the curiosity and the teachableness of children. The teachableness of children. Children love to learn new things. They like to explore surroundings. They, they like to ask how and why. and they, they love that stuff. And all of it demonstrates or reveals an attitude that, that basically cries out, teach me. They need to know everything and they need to know it personally. They have to touch it and taste it and experience for themselves. That I love that about kids. I'm going to tell you a story about my, my grandson, Jax. Um, don't listen. To, I'm going to tell you the story, but just think about Jax and not the theology of heaven and dogs. Okay? Just, just focus on that. All right? Um, so my mom died uh, earlier this year. Before she died, Marcy and I got to be in Calgary a lot. And we spent as much time as we could with mom. And um, we brought Jax with us uh, to see uh, Gigi. And, um, and, and he, he, he just would entertain Gigi, basically. And when mom died, uh, my son, Matthew, and my daughter-in-law, Jordan, they, they explained to Jax that Gigi's not here anymore. And he said, where is Gigi? And they said, Gigi's in heaven with Jesus. Oh. A couple, a week later or two weeks later, we, we were driving to the cemetery for my mom's inter internment. And Jax was in the car with Marcy and I, and he's just so full of questions. And he said, uh, where, where are we going? And Marcy said, uh, we're going to celebrate Gigi's life. Where is Gigi? Well, do you remember what mommy and daddy said? Gigi's in heaven with Jesus. Oh. Jax loved our two little dogs. They died earlier that year. Um, uh, Abby and Murphy. 
And he, he put two and two together because when he asked us about Abby and Murphy, we told him that Abby and Murphy are in heaven with Jesus too. And so he's in the car there. He says to Marcy, he says, Nana, is, 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 is Murphy and Abby in heaven with Gigi? And Marcy said, yep, they're together. Um, at the internment, we were standing, my brother and my sisters and I were standing right you know, in the front, just a few feet from the casket. And Jax, um, he came up and he was holding Marcy's hand. He calls her Nana. He's holding Nana's hand and the minister's right there and he's talking. And all of a sudden, Marcy, uh, Jax goes, Nana, Nana. And she goes right down to his level. Where's Chi-Chi? And, um, and, no, and, and, and Nana says, Gigi's in the box and she's sleeping. A few seconds, maybe a minute or so goes by. Nana, Nana, when is she going to wake up? Um, well, sweetheart, she's actually kind of awake already in heaven. It's a little, really hard explaining complex things to a three-year-old. And, um, and then, then he says, uh, Nana, is Gigi going to go by your house and pick up Abby and Murphy before she goes to Jesus? And Nana says, yes, she's going to swing by and pick them up before she goes to heaven. Nana, and the minister's right there, and this little guy just cannot get unlocked from this thought. Is Gigi sitting in her favorite blue chair, and is Abby and Murphy on her lap? And Marcy says, yes, sweetheart. They're all together. He goes, oh. And at last he was satisfied. But the thing I want to illustrate here is the complete humility. Children are so open to whatever their parents will pour into them. They're open to to, to whatever they can learn. And they're curious. And we've lost some of that with age. I think sometimes we're so afraid of not being theologically airtight that we don't bother to consider the vastness of the possibilities around God, around love. We stop being curious. We have have flat, rigid faith sometimes. This is an invitation for our hearts to be postured to know that I'm a child and he is my father. To know that I am the student and he is my teacher. And I don't have to know everything. But I need him. I need his face. I need his wisdom. And I need his love. Micah 6 8 says, Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Three things to act justly. To love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. Let's uh, let's pray together. Lord, I pray that um, would you restore a playfulness. I feel like we've just just been beat up.
and I've become jaded and I don't trust so easily and I don't have humble trust in people uh, and I pray that, that, that Lord that maybe you could move into this space of our hearts and help us to see wonder Help us to see your face in each other. So, Father, that we could live and act and, and be as children of love. In Jesus' name.